Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Convicted sex offender and former hockey coach Graham James is granted full parole for most Canadians. I don't think most of us would have a concern if Mr. James were incarcerated for the rest of his miserable life. But he's, uh, he's going to have full parole, and there will be few restrictions on him. And there have been lots of media reports saying that after that it's over, there's no more controls on him. That is not the case, says Scott Newark, former Alberta Crown attorney, former head of the Office for Victims of Crime for the province of Ontario and the past senior policy advisor to the Federal Minister for Public Safety. Scott Newark joins me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. First of all, Scott, this guy getting out just rubs people the wrong way. So let me ask you, is, how, how far have we come from the days you and I spoke about Joseph Fredericks being released as a sadomasochistic homicidal pedophile, and they then targeted 12-year-old Christopher Stevenson, who he held for a weekend and murdered? Uh, how far have we come from those days in the early 90s to today when a Graham James is paroled? What progress have we made? I think actually we've made uh, significant progress, and unfortunately, most of it has come from the horrible lessons of cases like the one that you decided with Joe Fredericks. I mean, that that case, uh, there was actually an inquest into uh, the circumstances of it. That case led to, uh, for example, and it's what the, as you, as you mentioned, a lot of the media didn't seem to realize. I read a CBC story that was, you know, moaning about sort of, oh, there's nothing we can do. Uh, actually, we changed the law back in the mid-'90s. We now have what's called Section 810.1, so that uh, even if somebody is passed when their warrant, their, their sentence expires, we have lawful authority to put them under restrictions, which is virtually identical to the conditions of a parole, or even including electronic monitoring. Um, and if they breach the conditions of those parole, that of itself is a criminal offense. That is, in my opinion, an underutilized tool. Um, governments have not provided the funding, for example, for uh, the, to use uh, electronic monitoring. It's starting to get used more, though. You're, you're hearing about it, in, for example, in peace bond situations uh, for uh, terrorism charges. Uh, and it's, it's that specialized kind of an order. It started, first of all, though, with the case that, uh, that you're describing with Joe Fredericks, with this uh, sex offender um, circumstances, because in the old days, as you know, we literally had to wait for another victim before the state could do something, and that's just simply not good enough. That also applies for uh, for Graham uh, James. If he is determined still to be a risk, the Crown can bring an application to have this kind of an order put on him. i got to tell you, though, I think it is unlikely that that will be the case. And I don't disagree with the, you know, the general disgust and aversion that most people have that you describe for a guy like this. But his are unlike, unlike um, uh, Joe Fredericks or unlike you know, another terrible uh, repeat offender, uh, Peter Whitmore, all of Graham James's uh, convictions were for historical offenses. In other words, he was not a re-offender after he'd been released where he was continuing his behaviors. And that's a significant difference. It's why he received a fixed sentence, I suspect, and not an indeterminate sentence, although, you know, this is Canada. You know, people say, oh, you know, if he was declared a dangerous offender, he'd be locked up indefinitely. Actually, he's eligible for parole in seven years. So you got to understand the workings of the system. But as I say, these 810 orders, 810.1 orders, are a significant improvement. We also created something called long-term offender 
orders, which are if somebody, they don't meet the dangerous offender uh, criteria, but they get a fixed sentence plus supervision of up to 10 years. We changed the rules, and it actually, a big part of it was because of Graham James. People like him are no longer eligible for pardons. If you remember, that's uh, where his uh, case first got attention was when people realized that he was actually had applied for and received a, uh, a pardon. Exactly. We now have laws that permit a court to delay parole eligibility. The normal eligibility is at one-third. They can delay it uh, up to uh, one-half. That was obviously not done in this case. Uh, we've got vastly, vastly increased victims' rights where victims are uh, able to go and uh, testify at, at a parole hearing, uh, give a submission to receive information about the offender. Back in the old days when you and I started this, if you remember, nobody was allowed to attend, right? You weren't allowed. It was all sort of just yeah. between the, uh, well, the t- board, Correctional me. Service of Canada and the offender. We managed to get that changed. The Victims' Bill of Rights that uh, Peter McKay, when he was the Justice Minister, brought in has expanded that as well, too. Yeah. Police are now using specialized targeted units on high-risk repeat offenders kind of thing. As I say, we allow electronic monitoring now on this kind of stuff. So we've made significant uh, improvements. This guy's case, because of the notoriety, I think, has caught sort of attention to it. Well, and Scott, and, yeah. right, and rightly so, because without notoriety, without cases right. of notoriety become, coming to the public attention, there's going to be a lot of under-the-radar activity which I think is significantly dangerous to the people of Canada. I have to take a break, but then when we come back, I I want to ask you what still seems to me to be uh, an official eagerness to release certain people into the general population in this country, specifically the likes of Graham James, an official eagerness to get them out. It used to be 50% in, 50% out. That was the policy of Correctional Service Canada. We'll talk more to Scott Newark about this. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Graham James, sex offender, paroled. And Scott Newark joins me, former Crown Attorney in Alberta, former head of the Office for Victims of Crime in the province of Ontario, Sheldon Kennedy Scott, Theo Fleury, two individuals who are victims of repeat victims, serial victims, of Graham James, strongly object to James being paroled. Um, Every week in this country, sex offenders are released somewhere, somewhere. Most of them don't have the, as I've said earlier, the significant public profile that Graham James has. Does our system still have too much of an emphasis on releasing these individuals do we keep track of their recidivism rate? And you mentioned the importance of victims in today's criminal justice system. I certainly hope it's more than it used to be. So why wouldn't the concerns and the, and the, and the worries and the objections of Sheldon Kennedy and Theo Fleury echo more strongly within the halls of bureaucracy? Well, you've you got to appreciate, though, that the, uh, uh, the framework in which these decisions are made is, you know, first of all, that there is an eligibility at one-third of the court-imposed sentence. And they look at a list of principles. That's one of the other changes, by the way. If you remember, Roy, it used to be one of the principles that was buried inside the legislation was that the person should be subject to the least restrictive form of custody. And that was often used to say, oh, we have to release them. The conservatives uh, repealed that section, and they made public safety the priority about it. But um, one of the things that I found so, fr- so frequently about this, and whether it was dealing with, remember the faint hope clause where you got out early on first-degree murder? It was well, you had the, the opportunity. Trail, 
that so many people felt when they suddenly found out that there was, you know, we had a say one thing, do another justice system, where somebody supposedly got a sentence, but then you found out, oh, actually, he's eligible for parole, and the sentence you thought he got wasn't the real sentence. There is a that that's why giving information to victims is such an important. But does, Scott, does the system still have this enthusiasm for letting individuals who clearly, to most of us, were considered uh, still to be a threat? Does the system still have an enthusiasm for letting them out? What we consider to be early, like well, Graham James. Um, you remember the guy we talked about about a month ago out in Calgary? The guy's uh, his last name was Perron. He was a, deemed a high risk to reoffend, and they released him anyway. And then the Calgary police had to rearrest him. One of the things that concerns me with the with the new government about this is not that there's been any change in laws, but exactly what you're talking about, which is that culture. We used to even actually it wasn't it wasn't me. It was a correctional officer testifying one time. He referred to it as it was known as quote GTO which meant get them out. And it's that culture that I am concerned may be creeping back into the corrections and parole system because there's a perception that there's a, a new government with different values. And if that is the case, or even on all of these kinds of cases, it's a point you made just before the break that is so important, which is that what we need to do is to be able to confront the realities of what is actually going on, and to challenge those based on facts. And that's why, again, to go to a point that you made, I'm so glad to hear that you've got uh, Kelly Leach coming on your, uh, your program tomorrow, because that is, from my perception, that is exactly what she is doing in relation to this issue about who it is exactly that's coming into Canada. And when she speaks of Canadian values, I don't think she's talking about eating maple syrup or watching hockey games. It's instead about protecting against violence against women and girls and forced marriages and child brides and everything else. And she is demonstrating, I think, at least the willingness in the kind of way that you and I have talked about for years about the criminal justice system, the willingness to confront the issue and to have that discussion and to make debates. And contrary to, the, to a lot of the other people that you described, you know, and for example, like uh, Tony Clement and Michael Chong, who prefer to look the other way, she's demonstrating, ladies and gentlemen, what I would call the, there's a word for it, it's called leadership. And that is exactly well, what we need, both in the issues she's talking about and on an ongoing basis in criminal Okay, justice. so would it have been leadership had Graham James been kept in prison beyond the time that he's being kept in prison? Period. I don't know. I mean, I, I wasn't at the hearing, so I don't know the factors. As what I've read in the media is that, look, he's a pedophile. He's not going to wake up and not be a pedophile. Right. But he's actually taken um, steps to control his behavior. Well, Scott, okay. you know, I my concern is, is of course... The concerns that's expressed by Theo Fleury and um, and Sheldon Kennedy and others, and that is, he is what he is, and right. he's not going to change, and that's that's just really significantly worrisome. If we if we if we if we keep close monitoring of of him, there may be an argument be made to, to let him out, but I'm I'm still not there. Scott, well, thanks for the time. I agree with you as well too. Okay, thanks, Scott. All Scott right. Newark, former Crown Attorney in Alberta. I just, there's no way I'm comfortable with Graham James being out in Canadian society, no matter what he says, no matter what they say, the bureaucrats and the prison officials and the parole officials. His history is who he is. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. 
You know, we have two official languages in this country, right? Le français and English. Although in Quebec, there's only one official language, le français. And I was in Quebec last week for a couple of hours. And I have to tell you, everybody from Quebec, turn off your radios for a few seconds. I was glad to leave again. Turn your radios back on. Um, I'm just so tired of having second-class citizen status. Parce que je suis anglophone. Second-class citizen because I'm anglophone once I'm in Quebec. Officially, it's the law. But we have uh, English and French as our official languages. We have an official languages commissioner, Mr. Fraser. I, 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 I don't know why we have an official languages commissioner, except we spend a lot of money on, on what he did or tried to do, didn't do. But in Vancouver, a condominium strata board has voted to conduct its annual general meeting business in Mandarin. And from what I understand, essentially all board business in Mandarin, Andreas Cargut is an English-only speaking condo owner in the 54-unit complex who filed a human rights complaint which has been accepted by the B.C. Human Rights Tribunal. Now, if I understand this correctly, there was the confrontation between Mandarin-speaking owners and board members in the condo complex and the English-speaking board members and condo owners. And in July, it appeared that a meeting between lawyers for the Mandarin-speaking condo owners and their English-speaking counterparts had arrived at a solution which would have had the annual general meeting business conducted in English and translated into Mandarin. But at the last moment, again, if I understand this correctly, the Mandarin-speaking owners reportedly reneged. Mr. Cargut is not happy. And he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Board members have accused him of essentially liking speaking to media too much. And, uh, and they said in part, they wrote in part, I'm looking at their news release here, um, Mr. Cargut seems to have all meetings, seeks to have all meetings in English, even when there are no observers present. This is completely unrealistic and would ignore the identity of this community. The council remains a group that speaks Mandarin as its first language, which reflects the groups, the group of owners and the multiculturalism of Canada. Effective communication is important to ensure mutual respect and allow all parties to understand. The council has shown itself committed to that belief by providing a translator. Moreover, the council is willing to hear any owner's issues or problems. However, stratas are run as a democracy, and one owner cannot dictate how things are governed. The council has been patient and has attempted to address numerous issues, but it is unfair and unreasonable to communicate falsehoods to the media. The Wellington Court Strata Council. Uh, Mr. Cargut, your side of the story, please, and have you been transmitting falsehoods? Uh, no, I haven't. If 
if there were any uh, uh, media inaccuracies, um, uh, it was because we were unaware of them. Um, the, uh, the 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 owner that uh, for three years in a row now has bringing in uh, who was bringing in multiple proxy votes, um, as uh, which I which I deem as uh, uh, as, as an exploitation of our weak uh, strata laws. Um, he, uh, I, I think he's smartening up a little, so he's having uh, other people um, uh, join in, uh, so that he's not holding all of the proxy votes. So, so in in, in terminology that we can all, can all understand, what's going on? Walk us through as quickly and as succinctly as you can through the process, which has wound up where you are today. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll put it all in a nutshell, and I'm going to try keeping things as factual as possible. And, sure. And you can definitely um, uh, stop me if you think that I'm, that I'm not uh, uh, saying factual stuff. Um, we have been experiencing uh, some, uh, some racial discrimination uh, since uh, July of 2014, which eventually got to the stage, to the state uh, in December, on December 8 of 2015, where uh, the president of the Strata Council had said, um, uh, you're welcome to come to uh, one of our council meetings as observers, but please keep in mind the meeting will be conducted entirely in Mandarin. Now, previous to this, had meetings been conducted in English, and had you been a member of the, of, of the, uh, of the board? Yes, I was. I, I, was uh, I was an original owner, and uh, about one year into it, I got onto council. And uh, that was 2005, mm-hmm. and I stayed on council until 2014, so nine years. All right. So in 2015, was it that the board was informed, and there were these pre- proxy shares, or yes, right, that were brought to the to the, if I understand correctly, to the board by one person, and yes. that shifted the balance, and then the board was informed that from there on, because it was Mandarin was the primary or the first language of. Of, of the people who are represented by the proxy votes and on the board uh, present, Mandarin was their primary language, and that was going to be the language of communication at the board meetings, correct? Uh, that is correct, yeah. And it is uh, one person that held all of the proxy votes. So uh, one person, um, and, and I mean, we are alleging uh, that, that he had solicited those proxy votes, but uh, whether or not he solicited them is irrelevant. Uh, the fact is that these 34 people that he got, or owners that he got the proxy votes, were not lined up outside his door to hand them their proxy votes. He actually went to each one of their addresses and gathered those votes. And uh, as an end result, uh, uh, the vote uh, was manipulated. And you have uh, evidence of this? Yes, we do. We, All right, we, Mr. Uh, Mr. Mr. Cargett, yeah. hold on. I'm going to come back to you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Cargett is with me, condo owner. Uh, are you still a board member? Uh, no, I'm not. You're not now. No, they, uh, okay. they've, they've done all they can to shut us out. All right. All right. So, so you're not a member of the board. And who, who makes up the board now? Uh, right now, uh, it's, uh, it's all uh, Mandarin-speaking people. All right. So, and they're all uh, residents. Which is very contradictory to their multicultural uh, statement that they said. And they're all residents of the condo building. They are, yeah. They're all owners, yeah. yeah owners and residents. Yeah. Okay, so up to 2015, communication was done in English? It, uh, it was, yes. Yeah. And then subsequently that changed after the one person, as you pointed out, appeared with proxy votes, which yeah. changed the balance yeah. and caused for the owners then present 
and represented by proxy to, to determine that Mandarin, because it was the primary language of the now constituted board, that Mandarin would be the language that would be used. Yes, that's correct. So where do you stand? I mean, in July, was there not an agreement that was, a, that was reached? I read that there was an agreement reached that, that there would be English would be spoken, but there would be translation into Mandarin. Was, was, is that the case? Well, on July uh, July seventh uh, of of this year, uh, we had a, a pre settlement uh, meeting, um, and uh, and all all of the conditions of of uh, our settlement, uh, it's all bound by by non disclosure. Um, but uh, what I can say is is the um, um, very very shortly uh, after we had signed the paperwork, um, saying yeah, this this is what we agreed to. Um, the uh, the other party, which is the respondents, um, did not uh, sign uh, what they had agreed to, and instead they came up with uh, a bunch of amendments to our initial agreement. Okay, so you've gone. Um, yeah, and that's stuff we didn't agree to. And then they sent it out uh, to to the uh, ownership, letting them know that uh, that we'd reach a settlement when in fact we did not. Okay, so now you've gone, or you er- earlier went to the Human Rights Tribunal, and they've agreed to hear your case. Yes, they have agreed to hear my case, so that would be the next step. What's the uh, what's the actual reality? How does this change the fact that Mandarin is going to be the language of communication in the board meetings? How does this change the reality of the governance of the building? How does it change things for you? Well, it it, it doesn't change uh, anything other than uh, uh, than uh, the, the communication itself. Mm-hmm. Um, when uh, the thing is, is we still have two official languages in Canada, right? And uh, when, when all of these owners uh, had purchased their units, the, the same as, as I did, uh, when you purchase that, uh, there's a lot of uh, legal stuff that you have to sign uh, in order to purchase a townhouse or a condo. Right. And one of them is uh, they ask you to read through all of the uh, strata bylaws, and you sign uh, a form saying that you have read them and you understand what it's saying. So if they purchase a place uh, uh, in English... It means that they, they, they understand enough to purchase it and to, to read the strata bylaws. Why change things up? Well, it comes right. down so, to, does it not, Mr. Cargo, for you, it comes down to we have two official languages in Canada, English, French, yes. use them. Yeah, yes? that's correct. That's correct, yeah, yeah. And, that's, and the, uh, that's, that's the fundamental argument. Now, you have a GoFundMe effort underway. Briefly tell us about that. Yes. Okay. So what happened was uh, once the case was accepted by the Human Rights Tribunal, they, they had accepted it because it was uh, a valid human rights case. Mm-hmm. They, could have, they could have just dismissed it right away, mm-hmm. and they didn't. Um, then we started, uh, I started getting contacted uh, by their, their lawyer. So then automatically uh, their uh, strata insurance um, uh, hires um, uh, a lawyer because they have um, strata director's insurance. Right, and he started trying to contact me, and I said, "You know what? Um, I don't want to be dealing with a lawyer alone uh, without having legal representation myself." So, uh, so we had hired a lawyer, and of course, um, uh, the one thing that many of your listeners may not know is uh, strata corporations are are protected by um, uh, strata directors insurance. Yeah, well, I have l- I have less th- I have less than a minute here. What you need is. What you're asking for is for people to assist you, right, at the GoFundMe page. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. how do they get? To, yeah. How do they find you? Well, what they do is they go to uh, GoFundMe.com/slash/AndreasCargut. Right. And uh, then you'll see uh, our our in English. You'll see our plea uh, and our story, and it'll also be in two versions of Chinese. Okay. 
and uh, we we think uh, it's worth fighting for. So if 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 uh, all of your listeners uh, would go in there, if you think that uh, that uh, Canada's official languages are worth fighting for, yeah, uh, and believe it's our constitutional right, then uh, please go to our GoFundMe page. If all of them were to contribute five or ten dollars, okay, I have to stop you because I just don't have any more time. But I thank you for the time, Andreas Cargut. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Travis Vader was found guilty of second-degree murder and uh, in the deaths of Lyle and Marie McCann of Alberta, both in their late 70s and traveling by a motorhome, and they were towing another vehicle. And the bodies of uh, the McCanns have never been found. DNA and mobile phone evidence connecting Vader to the McCanns were circumstantial, although Vader had possession of both McCann vehicles, as well as many of their possessions. And uh, while he was a broke meth addict, he suddenly had cash to spend. Now, this week, trial judge Denny Thomas based his conviction of Vader on second-degree murder on Section 230 of Canada's Criminal Code, which the Supreme Court declared unconstitutional in 1990. This has created quite a furor. How could this happen, and what happens now, as far as Vader's concerned? David Butt is a prominent criminal lawyer in Toronto. He's an editorialist for the Globe and Mail, writes op-ed pieces, and he's argued cases before the Supreme Court of Canada. Dave, thank you very much for joining me on the show. Um, is this an easy error to to make or 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 should it not happen given the fact that the supreme court of canada declared section 230 of the criminal code to be unconstitutional as far back as 1990 yes it's one of those uh, frankly uh, head shaking mistakes i mean judges are people like the rest of us they're not perfect uh, the law is difficult sometimes and so you know m- mistakes are are part of the landscape in our courts and that's why we have the higher courts to fix the mistakes of the lower courts. But having said that, to try to apply a section that has essentially been a dead letter for 26 years is one of those mistakes that, uh, I'm sorry, it just leaves your head shaking. So why was Section 230 not removed from the criminal code? Wasn't this just an error potentially waiting to take place? Yes, um, certainly that makes a lot of sense. And when you sort of see it in the broader context, what happens is that there are literally hundreds, 800 uh, plus sections of the criminal code, and judges across the country are constantly um, addressing them. Some of them get struck down, some of them remain, some of them get struck down in one province and not in another. So the approach that Parliament typically takes is that once, say every generation or so, they revamp the entire numbering system, get rid of all the old ones, and effectively clean house. But that's not something that can be done day to day just because there's so much business of reconsidering these 800-plus sections all the time. So for better or worse, there are a number of sections in the criminal code that are still there that nobody applies anymore. And Section 230 was one of them. The problem here is that Everybody who sits as a judge, everybody who appears in criminal courts is expected to know, as a matter of professional competence, which sections are applicable and which are not. And that's the mistake that happened here. 
Um, so, so what happens now potentially as far as a new trial is concerned and whether a new trial would again be for second degree murder or potentially manslaughter? What are the options? What are the, the possibilities? Sure. The, the possibilities right now are wide open. It will be up to the appeal court. Certainly there is, uh, I wasn't in the courtroom, of course, but based on the media reports, the amount of evidence pointing to uh, Mr. Vader connecting him to what is presumed to be the deaths, because we don't have bodies, uh, is certainly strong enough to mount a murder prosecution. And so it depends on what the Court of Appeal will do. Certainly there's a possibility that they will say, look, the judge made a mistake, but basically he got it right and the murder conviction may stand. He, the court, appeal court can also say, look, he got it wrong and we have to have a new trial. And so those are, are the, the two options, but the bottom line is that any verdict still remains possible. It'll just have to be, in, likely, in all likelihood, have to be done over again. So I take it there's no chance that Vader might walk free now? I doubt that highly, extremely highly, because even if a judge makes a mistake, the appeal court looks at the evidence and says, okay, a mistake was made, we've got to do this over again. Do we just let the... the uh, um, person walk or is there enough evidence to have a new trial and if there is enough evidence to have a new trial then at the very least the appeal court will order a new trial take place and i have no doubt that the uh, the crown in alberta would rerun the trial if they had to let me go back to something you said a minute ago dave and i think for many listeners it'll be interesting to know how a person can be found guilty of murder when nobody or bodies have been found Yes, it's, it's a very challenging situation for the prosecution. I happen in, in my career to have been one of the few prosecutors in Canada who's successfully prosecuted a uh, murder case without a body. And what's challenging about it is that in a typical murder case you, you, where you have a body, the fact of death is very easy to establish. I mean, you've got a body. Um, and usually... How that death was caused is very easy to establish. For example, you've got a pathologist who can say there were gunshot wounds or knife wounds and so on. In a no-body case, we're deprived of both of those things. There's no sort of automatic demonstrating there's a death, and there's certainly no way of demonstrating how somebody whose body we don't even have met their death. So that adds two really important layers of complexity onto a murder case, which may already be complex without those wrinkles. So we thought uh, it was over. We thought there was a second-degree murder conviction, and uh, and uh, the justice system would run its course, and now it's still going to run its course, but a significantly different course. Dave, thank you for the time, always. My, my pleasure, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So I'd say that's uh, that's pretty slick for a guy who uh, only started playing guitar a couple of years ago and and exchanged it f- for for a hockey stick, one of those big hockey sticks goaltenders use. You recognize the song, you recognize the voice. The song is Daniela Denmark. The voice is uh, that of Jonathan Roy, who joins me on the chorus radio network. It's pretty good. Thank you, brother. Yeah, How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing very good. I'm doing very good. My uh, my biological brother Kenny says hello. 
Yes. <laughs> he told me a lot about you. Yeah, yeah, it's a long story, then you don't want to repeat it. He's either. a good man. He's been doing a lot of good work for me. He's yeah. uh, everyone at Warner and, and especially Ken, it's just uh, it's been awesome to work with with good people and you go on the road and you have a good time and some good laughs and uh, he actually brought me into his home with his family and uh they've just been really really good to me. Well, you know, family's a, is a big deal and and your family is is uh, one that's very very famous. You know, there's a province full of Habs fans, never mind a province full, there's a country full of Habs fans who were hoping that uh, when Patrick Roy's son, Jonathan, played goal and in Quebec major junior hockey for the Ramparts with your dad as your coach, that you would in a few years' time be playing in goal for the Bleu, Blanc, and Rouge. <laughs> so, so. Um, you know what? I, 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 I wished it, but my dad didn't give me the jeans, man. He kept it all for himself. <laughs> man, but he, he had a lot of time. It was, it was unbelievable, uh, Mr. Green, to see him play hockey when he was, when he was at the top of his game. It was uh, to go to the the Forum and to go into see him also at Pepsi Center in Denver, and for him to win those Stanley Cups, it was uh, I was very very lucky to be up close and personal with all that kind of stuff. It was very very special to to have witnessed all that. Well, you know, and please call me Roy. Jonathan. Uh, Sounds good. You got to do that. Um, But it must have been really cool growing up. I want to talk to you about you and your career, but your family plays such an important part in your music development, but it must have been really cool growing up as Patrick Roy's son and then being coached by him with the Quebec Ramparts and the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. Man, those were some beautiful years, uh, really, to to have been coached by by my dad and uh, actually I played also with my little brother, so we were uh, the three wa the three was on the team, and it was uh, it was very very special. It's going to be a that's a memory that I'll remember for the rest of my life for sure. And um, yeah, it's uh, it was at the same time it was it was great and, and and tough because he was he was tough on us. He set the examples, uh, and he just wanted us to be uh, you know that we. We were there on the team, not because it was WA, because we were we were there because of our talent, because of our our passion and dedication to the team. So um, he was uh, he was tough and he was great and he he taught us a lot of stuff. He's uh, a great coach, man. So I mean, you had the ambition to play pro hockey, right? That had to be it when you were a kid to to follow in dad's skates. Yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely something that I loved very very much. Um, I mean, you, you grow up in the middle of it. Where I, I mean, just to give you an idea, I'm in '01 in 2001. Um, I'll always remember this. Like the Stanley Cup was uh, sitting on the kitchen counter, and it was about midnight. And I went down, and I grabbed it. No one was there, and I <laughs> brought it upstairs in my room. And I threw it under my covers, and I slept with it the rest of my the rest of the night. And so I lived these beautiful moments. And how can you not want to win that thing? Yeah. You know. So it was engraved in me, but. At the same time, my um, my mom was actually really pushing me towards music. She she loved music. She used to play piano all the time. And uh, before going to bed, like I we would we would go down. I would sit under the piano and listen to my mom play. And it would just it, I loved it. I loved the sound of music. And um, I was about eleven or twelve. Uh, it was Christmas, and my mom and dad bought me the drum set, the guitar, the piano, and I, I was. I was going to have my band and I was going to give it a try, you know, and at the same time, I, uh, I was like, you know what? I, I can't let my dad down. I didn't want to let my dad down. And I, so I, I stayed, stayed in hockey, but the love for music was, was there at, 
you know, at an early age. I just, I just was a little afraid of what my dad would think kind of thing. Well, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you and I'm thinking it's pretty cool. I'm talking to Patrick Roy's son, who was a really good, I mean, you were a really good goaltender. You wouldn't have made it to the ramparts if you weren't. Um, no, I mean, I played junior hockey. It's yeah, you played junior hockey. You played yeah. against Sidney Crosby. Yeah, they, they, well, he he was just coming out, but I mean, I played with some like Marc-Edouard Vlasic, who's who's you know playing for the San Jose Sharks, uh, Claude Giroux, who's you know Philly. Uh, so yeah, I played against some amazing players, and they were you know from the year that they played against me, the next year they were playing in the NHL. So yeah, I, I played some great hockey, man, and really enjoyed it. You know, hockey brought me a lot of stuff, Roy. Uh, it just it taught me how to win. It taught me how to be disciplined. Uh, it taught me to work, and it taught me also to work as a team. I, I love I love my band, and I love I've always loved my teammates. So it's brought me a lot. It's hockey is a is a it's still a big part of my life. You know. Well, as I'm listening to the uh, opening riffs of Daniela Denmark as the segment starts, and I'm thinking about you know I saw you uh, on TV. We'll talk about that in a second. But yeah. I know that you were you were you were a very good goaltender. You had an eight seven two save percentage, right? I don't know my stats. <laughs> yeah, that's what eight. Uh, I but I had a great. My last year was great. I think I had like something like fifteen wins. Yeah, you got in the playoffs. Yeah. So then I'm so I'm so I'm thinking about you as a member of the iconic Rua family and a very good hockey player yourself, on the verges of a pro career, and then I'm hearing you play guitar, and I'm hearing you. With, with Daniela Denmark, and it's a great story. I want, to, I want you to share with our listeners the story of the song in a second. But, but it, it's 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 for me. It's really cool to hear the music, and and know what's behind it. Know the family story, your story. Know what mm-hmm. you've done and how you've developed and how you've made. And you're still a very young man, and you've yeah. made this transition into a really tough career. You've gone from one tough career, sports, to yeah. an extremely tough career, music. Well, well, I got to say that I've, I've, I've always, um, I think I have a good head on my shoulders, and I've always gotten the right people to surround me. And uh, you know, I was, I was, uh, I was lost. I was, you know, t- four years ago. I'm 27 now. I'm terrible at math. That's what 23, 24. Works for me, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was completely lost. I didn't know where I was going with with my music career, and I needed to find somebody. And right. um, and I and I I got it. I got Corey Corey Hart's email, and. Um, and then I just, I wrote him. I said to him, hi, Corey, uh, this is Jonathan Waugh. I, uh, I told him who I was, what I wanted to do. I sent him three, four, five songs, and he listened. And um, and then uh, actually at, at, at that time said to me, I'm sorry, I'm not, I, I don't think I can help you when he wrote me back. And then I actually asked my dad, I said, Dad, I know you guys met back in 86. Um, my, uh, my Aunt Alex uh, was a huge fan of Corey's, and uh, Corey was a fan of, of my dad. So uh, Corey got, um, well, took a picture with my aunt Alex, and my dad gave Corey a hockey stick. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that there was a, a, a small relationship there. So I told my dad, I said, Dad, can you just tell him to give me a chance? And my dad actually uh, reached out to him and said, look, I uh, I want to know, if because I want my son to go back to school. My dad wanted me to go back to school right he was like get an education stop screwing around music you know you can't start doing music when you're you know 20 20 years old it's crazy joe and i said dad i, I want to do this i'm telling you so he he fought for me and uh and Corey uh, said yes okay bring him to nassau and so uh i went down to nassau and um he picked me up right with this i got like 
getting out of the airport, I'm, I'm thinking Corey Hart, you know, bodyguards and the whole <laughs> shebang with a nice car, old banged up Ford Explorer. And he comes out and he looks, he looks so good. The guy looks like he's you know, 34 years old. And he just gives me, gives me this big hug. And I felt at home. I felt like I was at the right place at the right time. And then he brought me uh, to his home and I played him, um, I played him a song. And I, I always remember this 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 moment because it was it's where everything started. I st- I opened my mouth and started singing, and Corey got up and he started pacing around this this big room. And um, I was like, oh man, he hates it. I'm gonna leave here and I'm not gonna have a record deal. And it's just I'm gonna have to go back to school. My dad was right, but I just kept going. I kept going. I gave it everything I got. And at the end of the end of the song, Corey looked at me. And he started applauding, and he said, "Welcome to Sienna Records." And so I've been very fortunate to to work with amazing people, and I've always gone out and grabbed the right people to surround me. I think I think maybe my dad has taught me that kind of skill. I don't know, but I've always gone out and grabbed my dreams one by one. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML. Jonathan Roy. Is my guest. Like That's right. I, I love that song. <laughs> Thank you, brother. I, I really love that reggae, but you brought it like it's like a, a mix of, of reggae and rock 2016. Thank you. It's a I, cool we, song. You know, we worked on the sound for four years, Corey and I, and we're really happy with, with what we. Oh, I that's can't so wait good. To show you guys everything else. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be really, really awesome. I want to tell everybody go to Jonathan Roy Official. Dot com. That's the website. JonathanRoyOfficial.com is the website, and there's a concert tour there. And you're going to be um, in a uh, number of Ontario markets, Quebec markets in October and November. Yeah. Walk of Fame on the 25th, actually, in Toronto. Cool. Which is going to be awesome. And I'm uh, doing a show in London at uh, Rum Runners uh, Music Hall on the 29th. So I'm really looking forward to uh, to these shows. I want to, like, I've been doing shows. Uh, more on the uh, actually West Coast and uh, and Quebec. But I'm really looking forward to to coming more in Ontario. I actually live in Toronto now. I've been living here for eight eight months, and I, I man, I love the city. It's amazing. So when you step on stage to perform, yeah. how how does that compare? Because most people have done neither. Okay, most of us have done neither. We sit in the stands and we cheer or we boo, depending on where we're at. You've done both. When you step on the ice to uh, to start a playoff game in Major Junior A hockey, uh, or you step on stage to uh, to do a set, to go out and perform, is there a comparison between the two? Well, I mean, you're definitely going out to going out to perform and win the game, right? So, yeah, um, yeah there's definitely it's both are the are, are the same just one is probably a little more i can't even say it. they're both creative you got to be yeah. creative on the ice as well so they're yeah they're 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 two things you go out there you, you you're passionate you, you the love for the game the love for music and you just you give it all you got so yeah i think they're they're everything that i've learned from hockey i've i've applied it to to music i wasn't going to ask you this question i know everybody mm-hmm. asks the question but i I have to. And you know, I have to ask you the question. And it's a question about the fight, but I want to ask it in a different way, I hope. Go ahead. All right. So you're always asked about Bobby Nadeau and the fight. So mm-hmm. um, 
that game, that moment in Jonathan Raw's life, how soon after that moment did you realize, I blew it? Was it something you realized yourself? Was it some something someone said to you? And is it gone now for you? Is it gone? Well, this, how can I say this? I, I was a very tough, it was a very tough time in my life. Um, I, I really struggled through, through that time, especially at 18 years old. I was, you know, being criticized and, and, and people were judging me and, um, it was, it was very tough. It was very hard on me. I, I felt like a bad person and I'm not a bad person. I did something stupid and everybody does stupid stuff, you know? And I just, I did it and I have a name that, that, you know, goes out there. And I think right. that to be honest with you, uh, Roy, if I was, um, called, uh, Johnny green, I think we would have never heard about the fight. Um, doesn't take anything. What I did was, was bad and it doesn't take anything, but it went out of proportion. And, uh, um, I, I was not comfortable with everything. It was hard. I stayed at home. I didn't move. I, I just didn't know how to, how to handle people and, and what they thought about me. But Roy, it changed me for the rest of my life. It made me a better person. It made, it made me a stronger person. I learned so much about myself. Um, and I, and I, I'm, I'm so, you know, like uh, it sucks that it happened, but at the same time, I'm happy that it happened because it needed to happen to wake me up. And, uh, it definitely did that, did that for me. You know, and you have a message for young people and you deliver it really, really well when you talk about that moment in your life, because other young people have moments in their lives that they don't know what to do with and how to handle it. And yeah. what, how am I going to, how am I going to deal with this? I screwed up. How am I going to deal with it? Jonathan Ross says, here's what I did. Here's how I'm facing it. You help them. You're helping them. Thank you. I have one more question for you. What's, what's, what's the story behind Daniela Denmark? You have to share that. We have a minute. <laughs> we have a minute. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it was, uh, we, we had, Corey and I had written maybe 30, 40 songs. And uh, we, uh, we were very happy. We had a single set. And we were like, okay, this is great. And then one night, Corey had this crazy dream of being in Denmark and me singing on this stage. And I was singing this melody of Daniela Denmark. And uh, he wakes up and um, he, he just, his wife is freaking out. And Corey go back to bed because he's like, I, I have an idea, Julie. I have an idea. I got to write this song. I have, I just had this dream of Joe. And then and Jonathan, I have, I literally, I literally have 10 seconds. No, okay. Well, anyways, Corey wrote this song from a dream, and it was his first ever song that came out of a dream. And, you know, it changed my life. It went top 10 in Canada, and it's, it's a, I'm very lucky to have a writer like Corey Hart, a manager like Corey Hart, and a man like Corey Hart behind me because it really We're lucky. has brought me to another level, man. We're lucky to have you, man. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you. And uh, I'd love to come by the studio and play some songs for you guys, oh. man, anytime. Love to do that. Thanks, All Jonathan. Right, the Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.